Okay, good morning, you all. Uh, I'm, I really want to finish chapter 19 today, so please be patient with me. If we run a little longer than normal, it'll be a great place to stop uh, uh, during the interval uh, when we'll be traveling. So we do appreciate your prayers uh, uh, leaving here tomorrow. And uh, my family's kind of used to this happening, us being apart for a time and all of that, Jamie running home. But it's kind of a new experience for Mindy, so I remember it was very difficult for Jamie back in the early days of our marriage. So just pray for her. Um, going to visit family is a good thing, and uh, I remember those days. So uh, just praise God for wives that understand God's call. There's a lot of men in ministry that made terrible, terrible mistakes when they chose to get married. God called them to ministry, and then they made a bad choice when they got married, or they didn't properly lead and uh, uh, nourish and nurture their wives in the marriage so that serving God in ministry and dealing with family is a very difficult thing. Some men aren't, you know, don't even obey what God's called them to do because of the nightmare scenario that results at home. I don't have to worry about stuff like that. I know Eric doesn't either, and I know the men of this church don't. So that's a privilege. There's a lot of young men in American history that had to leave their wives and families uh, and didn't know if they'd ever come back. Many of them never did because they went to war. Uh, that's something our society knows nothing about today uh, and would know nothing about if a danger arose like it did in the 1930s. So um, I praise God for that. Just be in prayer for her. I want to show you a little clip this morning uh, that was taken over in Israel a couple of years ago. And I thought it, it deals directly with the passage of Scripture we're studying today. And uh, I'll probably take Eric to this place. So um, I, I, think, I thought it would be interesting to hear the Scriptures from a place that these Scriptures relate to. Uh, but before we do, uh, as we study Revelation, I was kind of thinking this morning when Matthew was making reference to us being 40 years old, and it seems like yesterday we were playing over at... Uh, 1014 East 23rd Street, Newton, North Carolina, 28658. That's the first address I ever learned. <laughs> I think uh, your mom ended up living next door to that place, 1010. Okay, that was the Mazak home. The dogs that he would always walk over and let them poop in our yard, but not in his. So, wonderful. But I was thinking about that, and I, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Katie, and I don't even know if you remember, but I remember very distinctly and when we grew up there, we, we used to play with Katie and her brother Bert across the street all the time. We got into all kinds of stuff, sometimes trouble. Yeah. But I remember getting a Bible when I was a kid. It was a picture Bible, uh, and it had graphic images of things in cartoon format of stories through the Bible as you uh, flip through it. And I remember there were some pretty graphic pictures in the book of Revelation about the things that we're talking about. And as, a kid, as, as an adult, they were no big deal. But as a kid, they were kind of scary. You know, pictures of the, the dragon and the beast and all of these things. And I distinctly remember us taking that Bible and showing Katie those pictures and talking about the end times. And I remember sometime after that, my mom telling Matthew and I we couldn't do that anymore because apparently her mother got a little upset about it. And uh, it was scary. And, of course, it's scary to a kid. And my mom told us not to do that anymore. And I just think history's ironic because how many years later 
she's sitting here listening to the preaching from the very books we talked about as children all those years ago. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen your mom in years. I don't know how she'd feel about it today. But we're, God brings things full circle. I just think that's interesting. And I don't know if you remember that. I don't, but I remember feeling that because she told me as an adult. <laughs> now, I remember and distinctly. Amen, amen. Lift her up. Her name's Vicki. Um, but yeah, I remember that as a kid, you know, being confronted with these scenes from Revelation and, and Matthew and I talking to Katie about it. And, and as a kid, it's kind of scary. And uh, it should be scary to all of us. It should drive us to be right with God because God makes an easy way for us to escape these things. It's very easy. But men in their lostness will choose God's wrath and these horrible, scary things. They'll choose them because they love their pride and their sin too much. These things are real. And the answer to the things in the Bible that are serious is not to stop talking about them. That's what the church does. They don't want to talk about it. There's things we don't want to talk about with our kids when we should. And then when they come upon us, they come as a flood and we're not prepared. So that's why we spend our time talking about these things. We're in Revelation 19. Uh, I ended last time with a two-part message on the name that Messiah is referred to. He's the Word of God. And we talked the last two Sundays about the mysterious, inseparable relationship between the living Word and the written Word. And I think the point was very clear. You can't have Christ without the Bible. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe the Bible. And the living word and the written word are one and the same. They don't contradict or work against one another. So if you worship, a, if you love a Jesus that's okay with you not caring about his word, then your Jesus is an idol who will lead you to damnation in hell. And that's where the church is today, thinking we can have Jesus without the Bible. And this scene, when the heavens open, tells otherwise. So both of those messages are up now, and I encourage you to go back and listen to them if you missed one of them. But we want to move on today. I'm going to start in verse 14 and hopefully go to the end of the chapter. But before I do, I want to play you this little clip. It's about five minutes, and I thought you might uh, enjoy this. Greetings, my friends. I'm standing here in a place called Tel Megiddo. Israel at the entrance to the Jezreel Valley, a very strategic point, a very significant point in human history, both past and future. So I'd like to read you a little something today. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, 
Righteousness, righteousness, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, churchianity. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. No, my friends, the Creator God is not always in a good mood. His wrath and his fierceness is white hot, and judgment cometh. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves to the, together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, not symbolism, literal fire, literal judgment and eternal damnation. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. My friends, there is only one escape from the white-hot fierceness and wrath of a righteous Creator God. And that is to find shelter in the refuge of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, who gave his life, shed his blood as a payment for the penalty of sin, and then rose again from the dead, something no prophet has ever done by his own power. That we might have justification, repent, and believe the gospel, for a supper is coming, 
a supper of the great God, in which the fowls of the air will be filled with the flesh of wicked men. And as sure as Jesus Christ was born in little, literal fulfillment of detailed prophecy, so such will be fulfilled at this place, sooner rather than later. Amen. Okay, all right, that's a site at the uh, junction of the Jezreel Valley on near uh, uh, Mount Carmel and highway cuts over to the coast. That's a place called Tel Megiddo. It's a place Solomon had stables and a military barracks there and uh, you can walk amongst those ruins. You can go down into the cistern underneath the hill where they stored water and you can literally look out um, and, and, and see this, this mighty valley where the armies will be gathered for that one last battle. And as sure as the things regarding the first coming of Christ were fulfilled literally in the very places it was written, so it will be with the second coming. And so I'm sure I'll get to take Eric up there. It's a really interesting place. It's an eerie place. It's a strange place. Um, and you can see it unfold before your eyes. We're going to, uh, I read the scripture for you. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. Verse 14. We've learned about his, his charger. We've talked about his, his name, how he's crowned, many crowns, a vesture dipped in blood, called faithful and true, a special name that no man knows but himself. It's called the Word of God. Then in verse 14, we see his armies. He doesn't come alone. He doesn't need an army to fight for him, but he brings one anyway. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, just like their leader, their own white chargers, clothed in linen, <coughs> fine and clean. This is the church. This is the bride of Christ. They are his bride and they are his army. They are clothed in linen, fine, white and clean, and we've already seen back in verse 8 that unto the bride was granted that she should be arrayed in linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Our wedding garments are our suits of armor. They are our garments prepared for war. And the armies that follow him are those that are raptured by him, those that are married to him, the New Testament church. You know, John's not the only one that saw this. John's not the only one that saw these armies. Enoch saw this. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, before he was raptured out, a type of the church before the judgment. Enoch was raptured before the flood. Noah was a type of Israel preserved through the judgment just like Israel will be during the tribulation. But Enoch saw this. This is recorded in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. And of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
Men are going to give an account for the stupid and foolish things they say concerning God and concerning Jesus the Messiah. And the saints, his army, ten thousands of saints are going to execute that judgment. There are some really stupid things that people in Washington have said about our God and about our Lord. And they're going to answer to it. And we're going to be part of executing that judgment upon them. Praise God. Enoch saw this. Moses saw this scene. When Moses blessed the children of Israel right before his death, he looked far into the future. And that compelled him to say what he said to a people he knew would turn their back on God. He knew they would. Chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, and this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them, and he shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From the right hand, from his right hand went a fiery law for them. This isn't God on Mount Sinai when Israel was gathered there in the desert. This is in the future when the heavens are open. We've talked about the route the Messiah takes up through the desert, through Edom, Mount Seir into Jerusalem. Moses saw this. Ten thousands of his saints. Zechariah saw this. In chapter 14, we're going to look at that a little bit later. Paul saw this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. But uh, let's, that's 2 Thessalonians 3.13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It's a glorious thing. Not to just be part of this bride, but to be part of that army. That's the vengeance. And we'll get to take part in it. We'll get to wash our feet in the blood of the wicked, Psalm 58. I'm not afraid to rejoice in that. That's scripture. Look at verse 15. Consider his, his weaponry, his arsenal. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He's got a sharp sword. Out of his mouth, we know that to be the word of God, and he's got a rod of iron. Those are his weapons. Nothing fancy, but very effective. The sword out of his mouth is meant to conquer and smite. It's double-edged, just like the word of God. A double-edged sword is this book. A giant bear trap. In Hebrews, we're told that it divides asunder the soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's quite literal. It's a sword with which he smites the nations. He divides their souls and their spirits from their bodies. Literal. The iron rod is to rule. To rule the nations. 
That word rule there in the original language of the New Testament is the same verb that Jesus uses at the end of John when, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, well, you know I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. Feed there is the same verb. It means to rule as a shepherd would rule a flock. Not to lord over them. Peter talks about this in his epistles. Those that are called to lead in the church are not to rule over or lord over, but lead by example. Christ Jesus will rule this world literally in the millennial kingdom. He will rule with a rod of iron. His rule will be serious. His rule will be fierce. But it won't be a do as I say. It will be a do as I do. Jesus Christ won't rule like our politicians who say one thing and do another. Who gin up support by making fiery speeches and claiming to be for and against certain things. And then when they get in office they try to appease the other side and forget about what they said. Or they try to dupe us into thinking that they are keeping a promise when, when a kindergartner can see they're not. That's not the rule that Christ is bringing. He's bringing perfect righteousness. That means he will do and live as he says and expects us to live. A rod of iron, like the rod a shepherd has to guide his sheep. To guide them, to put them back in line, to nourish them, to feed them. <coughs> This is literally the fulfillment of the second psalm here. This is literally the fulfillment of the second psalm prophesied long ago. This is one of the great messianic psalms. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that setteth in the heavens shall laugh. God shall, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now there, thou therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. In light of this future certainty, God warns the kings and rulers of this earth. Our president would do well to heed. It's written right here. It's not in a hidden cave or in hidden documents buried under some ancient church. It's right there. Listen up, you kings, you rulers. Serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. Quit bragging about yourself and how great you are and start serving the Lord with fear and trembling. That's what the leaders should do. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled. But a little blessed are all they that put their trust in him. This is the literal fulfillment. The kings are literally gathered against Christ to stop him. And he smites them with the sword that comes from his mouth. And he rules them with a rod of iron. 
God will have his way. He pointed it long ago. He anointed Christ as Messiah. This is my son. This is whom I've begotten. This is who will rule. And he will rule. We're told in Isaiah 59, I'm not going to read the chapter. It's worth reading. It's a similar uh, prophecy that details these events. We're told that the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And it's described in Isaiah 59 that... um, Let me turn to the the chapter here. I don't want to read the whole thing. But it's, it's, uh, it's it's described there that He comes to fight, to deliver Israel when there is no intercessor. And it says in verse 17 that He puts on a righteousness as a blessed breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. And He puts on garments of vengeance. And then it talks about Him coming and ruling and His name being feared throughout the earth. So in Isaiah which describes the same scenario, we have defensive armor on the Messiah, a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation. The the sword of this, I mean, the, the, the armor of God that Paul talks about there in Galatians chapter 6, or Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, sorry. I knew I could look at my dad and get a, a yay or a nay on that. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul didn't just make that up out of thin air. The breastplate of righteousness is the clothing of Messiah, the, the uh the um, uh, uh, helmet of salvation. These are things uh, that are mentioned in the Bible elsewhere. But the Messiah dons defensive armor. But in chapter 19, we don't see any of that. No defensive armor. Why? Because none's ultimately needed to protect himself. Perhaps he has it on and then cast it aside because he doesn't need it. When he... When the heavens open and He comes on the scene, there is no armor hiding who He is. There is no mistaking His identity. It is the Christ. And all He has is an offensive weapon. He doesn't need armor. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That scene we see in Revelation 14 of the angel thrusting in that sharp sickle. And the wine press of God's wrath being trod, the blood mashed so flat the blood comes up to the horses' bridles, extending out a couple hundred miles from Jerusalem. It's Jesus that treads that wine press. He treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. When He returns with His armies, He is full of fierce. White hot wrath. The wrath of the Lamb. He comes as a furious storm. And there is no escaping Him. The only way you can escape that day is to put your faith and trust in Christ now and to become part of His church, the bride. That doesn't come by going to church. It doesn't come by walking an aisle and repeating some words after a preacher. It doesn't come because your mom and your dad love Jesus. It doesn't come because you're a good person. There's none righteous, no, not one. It doesn't come because you vote a certain way or because you are moral. Mormon people are very moral, but their theology and what they believe and what they claim is desperately wicked. 
Salvation comes by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And only in that, that repentance toward God and faith in Christ, as Paul summed it up for the Ephesian elders, only in that can we escape the storm. Those that die and miss it here on this earth, they may miss that, but they go to hell. And they're held in hell until after the millennium. But to truly escape the wrath of God can only be found in Christ the Messiah. Here, he is a fierce and furious storm, but the irony is, is that furious storm is also the shelter from the storm. So you can either find shelter in the storm or be overrun by that storm. Jesus described it this way. The stone which the builders rejected, the same will become the chief cornerstone. Whosoever falls upon that stone will be broken, but upon whosoever that fall, stone falls, it will grind him to powder. So you can either fall on Christ and be broken and humbled, or he'll fall on you. You can either seek refuge in the storm, or the storm will blast upon you. We see a picture of this in one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament prophets, in the, in the prophet Nahum. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum is how it's pronounced in Hebrew. Nahum is just an English way of saying it, but it's Nahum. Every time I say Nahum in the presence of an Israeli, they correct me. This, this book opens up very serious. It's God's judgment against Nineveh, which is a microcosmic picture of his judgment against the nations. We've talked about that in this study. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Paul describes the day of Jesus Christ as, as uh, uh, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not Christ. You know, Paul wasn't writing anything new. It's right here. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. God is slow to anger, but when payday comes, that anger is a level you cannot comprehend. When it does come, it's fierce. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth in Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. What a storm, a storm that melts mountains. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. This is the scene John's describing. But then suddenly, look at what the prophet says. This same furious Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble and he knoweth them that trust in him. So this same Lord who is a furious storm is also the refuge from that storm for those that trust Him. He's a furious storm upon the wicked and upon the armies of the beast, but upon those that trust Him, He's a refuge. 
The storm can rage all around. But the refuge that is in Christ is like that house built upon a rock. The winds and the waves beat and it stands fast. So kids, you, Jesus is a storm, but he's also a shelter. Blessed are those that trust in him. To trust him to be your refuge is the essence of believing upon him. To acknowledge that he's coming to judge the world in righteousness. But if we'll trust him and believe upon him, we can escape that. That's the essence of faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. The storm and yet the refuge from the storm. Verse 16 of chapter 19, we're told, He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We have several names referenced in this scene. He's called faithful and true. He has a name that no man knows but he himself. A name written. He's called the word of God. And here we have a name inscribed upon his vesture. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is his rank. He's wearing his rank. His rank is king of kings. Not a king of kings, not a king, but the king of kings. Not a lord, not a lord of lords, but the lord of lords. That is his rank. That's an easy image for me to visualize because we have that in martial arts. You wear your rank. Some have colored belts. Then you wear a rank of black belt. Some traditions, when you get a black belt, you start putting yellow stripes on it or different things that indicate what level of black belt. Now, we don't really like that in our dojo. Once you get black belt, we just need to... I just wear a plain black belt most of the time. I don't need to show my rank. I'll, I'll make what I do show my rank. I don't need a stripe on my belt to show my six-dollar rank. I can show it perfectly well when people attack me on the mat. So we don't tend to put faith and trust in ranks. That doesn't mean anything. I've seen guys with big old huge sensei bellies that uh, have all these ranks, but they're the worst teachers on the planet, and I really don't think they know what they're talking about. But Christ wears his rank. He doesn't just wear it. He earns it. He's earned it, and he shows it all in one scoop. A name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, written twice. It's upon his vesture, and it's upon his thigh. Remember, his vesture is dipped in blood. Christ came once. His vesture, his bloody vesture was divided, and they gambled for it, the Roman soldiers. It was dipped in his own blood. He comes a second time, it's dipped in the blood of the wicked. And inscribed on this vesture is his rank. It's also carved in his thigh. This is not a tattoo. This is perfect scarification. It's engraved in his thigh, his rank. It's permanent. You know, a lot of people, get, they do what's called scarification. You can go look at some of this online. It's really horrid where they carve things in their flesh. And uh, it's there permanently. That's not what we have here. This is perfect. His rank he carries with him for all eternity. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is three times in the New Testament, this rank. 
Paul refers to it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six. I'm having trouble turning in my Bible this morning. Thou shalt keep this commandment, he's writing to young Timothy, without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then we see it again in Revelation 17, the judgment of the great whore. Verse 14 talks about the kings aligned with the Antichrist. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And then we see it here. There's a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We also see this three times in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verses 16 through 18. Moses says to the people. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And be no more stiff necked. You know circumcision of the flesh never made Israel righteous. They were to circumcise their hearts. You can circumcise your flesh all day long, but if your heart's not circumcised, what good is it? You can walk an aisle, say a prayer, and get dunked in the water all day long, but if your heart hasn't been baptized in Jesus Christ, what good is it? Circumcise your hearts, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. In other words, you can't bribe God. You can't lobby God. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. God of gods and Lord of lords. In Psalm 136... Verse 3, oh, give, no, that's not right. Oh, oh, it is. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. And then perhaps most interestingly is in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, 46 through 47. Daniel has interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And then this is how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Then the king fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. But the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secret. Seest thou could reveal this secret. So God is referred to as the God of God or a God of gods and a Lord of kings. It's kind of interesting to see the progression of Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of who God is with Daniel 2, 3, and 4. You see, here he refers to God as a Lord of kings. And this same title is given to Nebuchadnezzar himself 
in Ezekiel chapter 26. Verse 7, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north. So Nebuchadnezzar, after Daniel interprets his dream, acknowledges God as a God of kings. A king of kings. A lord of lords. Or a lord of kings. Nebuchadnezzar himself is called by God a king or a lord of kings in the prophet Ezekiel. But as you progress and you have the scenario with the fiery furnace in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not capitulate. They're delivered by the Son of God from the fiery furnace. You have Nebuchadnezzar saying, now, not only is this God a God of gods, a God of kings, but I'm making a law that no one in my kingdom is allowed to speak anything against this God. Because there's no God that can deliver after this soul. And then you get to chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar in his pride looks over his kingdom and then God strikes him with a sickness where he acts like an animal basically for seven years and they have to turn him out into the field. And then after that seven years, his reason returns unto him and his faith has been secured. At the same time, my reason returned unto me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me and my counselors and my Lord sought unto me and I was established in my kingdom and excellency was added unto me. Now... I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor thee, king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride, even he is able to abase. So we go from, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, a lord of kings to don't speak anything against him to now... I acknowledge him not just as a Lord of kings, not just as a God of gods, not just as someone we shouldn't speak against, but the King of heaven. And therefore, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Most High. That's quite a progression there. That would be a progression that our president would do well to model. You know, Nebuchadnezzar said good things about God in chapter 2 after he got something from Daniel. But then he throws Daniel's friends in a fiery furnace. He said good things about the Lord after all that, but God still had to humble him and put him on his face before he really saw the Lord as he is. The Messiah is not a God of gods. He's not somebody that people in India are more than willing to sit on a shelf beside all their other gods and worship and pray to. He is the God of gods, the King of kings. He's the only true God, the God of Israel. The God of the Quran is not the God of Israel. He's a false God. The God of American churchianity is not the God of Israel, the God of gods that Nebuchadnezzar recognized. And the Jesus Christ of the Bible is the one that returns, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not the idol that's only a King of kings in the minds of many people. Our president would do well to follow this example. Maybe we should pray that God would humble him 
like he humbled Nebuchadnezzar, even if it means he has to eat grass in a field for seven years. So that when it's all said and done, he's established and he acknowledges the rule of God in his life, not just in his campaign speech. Maybe we should pray that. Nebuchadnezzar was a saved man, according to this testimony. I pray the Lord will save our president. He needs to be saved. He can't fight this evil and lead this country without the Holy Spirit. And he certainly cannot do it without following the Word of God. And that would necessitate national repentance and humiliation before God if this country were to be great. He must lead us in repenting. King of kings and Lord of lords, that's who we serve. If you go back and you look at the book of Revelation, John gives us, or Jesus gives John an outline. The things which you have already seen, the things which are, the things which are hereafter. It's in Revelation 1 verse 20, I believe. Things which John saw was the vision of Christ, the things which are, this present age, this present dispensation, the church age. And the things which are hereafter began at chapter 4 verse 1. Starts with the rapture and it goes to the end of the book. That includes the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture. Four, chapter, the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is heaven's throne room. And then with chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 16, we have the tribulation period. 17 and 18, we saw the destruction of the world system, both its religious and commercial elements. Here in the first 16 verses of chapter 19, we've seen the second coming of Jesus Christ. And now here at the end of the chapter, verses 17 through 21, we have what's called Armageddon. There's been reference to it already in Revelation unto its gathering. And here we have that great battle, which is referred to as a supper. Men have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb earlier in chapter 19. Here the fowls of heaven are invited to God's supper. The Supper of the Great God. We know this means, this follows chronologically. John saw the marriage supper. And then, and I saw, verse 9, uh, the marriage supper. And then, and I saw heaven opened. And then, and I saw here uh, in verse 17. So the marriage supper is not Jesus fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles. He literally fulfills the Jewish feast. He's done the spring feast already at his first coming. He will at the second coming, the fall feast, one of which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to see that this is literally fulfilled in the millennium. It tells us this in Zechariah 14. Some mistake the marriage supper with the Feast of Tabernacles. That's not so. That's a supper in heaven. And then it's contrasted here in this chapter with a supper of the great God that follows chronologically. Those called to the marriage supper are called, chosen, faithful, and invited. Here for this supper, the invitations don't go out to men. They go out to the fowls of heaven. Come, gather, and feast. That old song by Larry Norman about being left. Being left behind. Sorry about that, Debbie. I hope I didn't. I didn't break it. Praise God. <laughs> Says, uh, um, 
What's the name of it? I wish we'd all been ready. I'm drawing a blank here. There's a line in there. The father spoke, the demons dined. And that's a reference to this. The father speaks, come gather fowls of heaven and feast. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. What we have here is an eclipse of all eclipses. An angel stands in the sun. An eclipse that will eclipse what we saw on August 21st, 2017. You know, people... Poor people around the world in the third world see an eclipse like that and they have enough sense to know that it's a sign in the heaven foreboding doom. God's warning. God puts signs in the heaven to warn us. We as a nation were warned on August 21st, 2017 when a full eclipse literally passed from coast to coast over this country. And if you go back and look at the things that have happened in this nation since that date, It's obvious that God has warned us, but we have not listened. We haven't listened. We've even forgot about that. I remember standing under that eclipsed sky down there in South Carolina and holding up a giant sign that says, Repent. That's what that eclipse was warning us to do, repent, because judgment is coming. Here we have an eclipse of eclipses, an eclipse of eclipses, an angel standing in the sun and obscuring its light. The last time we saw the sun in Revelation was in chapter 16, verse 8. The fourth vial, power was given unto the sun to scorch men with fire and with great heat. And how did they respond? They just blasphemed and refused to repent. That's the thing. When God's judgment comes, men aren't going to repent. They're going to blaspheme and hate Him. We've got people in our government that hate God. And every decision they make, everything they say, every word spoken to the press is motivated by their hatred, not just of God, but of His Messiah and of those that follow the Messiah. They are enemies of the church. They are enemies of the United States. They're traitors who should be dealt with accordingly. But most people don't care. They care more about who won the Super Bowl or who's going to win the basketball game this afternoon. Men blasphemed God and repented not. The sun is obscured when this invitation is given. We're going we're to see this same scene in, in the prophet Zechariah. Gives us a little more detail. Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. And the houses rifled. And the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So in the gathering together of this battle, there's there's fighting. Men are fighting themselves. Jerusalem is destroyed. People are ravished. There's fighting. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Those that are fighting each other at Jerusalem and destroying the city. 
Then he will go forth and fight all of them. As when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. This is being written to Israel. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Asal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. So on that day, the light and the darkness is going to be all screwed up. It's not going to be like a normal day or night. It won't be clear. It won't be dark. At noontime, it'll be light outside. A great angel stands in front of the sun and obscures its light. You know, the same thing happened... at Jesus' first coming, the light was all screwed up. If you look at Amos chapter 8, which is a prophecy of this, and the Gospels describe it. Amos chapter 8, 9, and 10, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And I will turn your feast into mourning, And all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of an only son. And the end thereof is a bitter day. When did this happen? When God caused it to get dark at noon? During a feast? Crucifixion. Jesus Christ hung on a cross. It got dark at noon until 3 o'clock. It was in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Turned a feast into mourning. Just like God had said. And then it's interesting if you go on to read. uh, After this, God says, I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine for food of water, but for hearing the word of the Lord. So once Israel crucified its Messiah, God sent a famine. And that famine for being able to understand God's word exists even to this day. They can read the scriptures and the rabbis can't see the basic truth. It's a veil. It's a veil. But in Christ it can be removed. If we thought there was no hope for the Jew that had rejected Christ, we wouldn't spend our time laboring to share that gospel with him in our our ministry. That veil can be removed in Christ. And the proof is the life and work of the Apostle Paul who represented every rabbi and Pharisee that hated the concept of Messiah. That veil can be removed in Christ, but that veil is upon the people. This prophecy has come true. But as in the first coming, so in the second coming. First coming, a vesture dipped with his own blood. The second coming, a vesture dipped with the blood of his enemies. When he died on that cross, his first advent, the light was all screwed up. And when he comes again, his second advent, the sun and his light all screwed up. The supper of the great God. To the fowls of heaven, come and feast. 
I'm all over the scriptures this morning and I can't find my place. Come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God and eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and horses and then that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Jesus referred to this supper in Matthew 24, in Luke 17. He talked about wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. In Luke 17, he made reference to the rapture. Two will be in the field, two will be in the bed, one will be taken, the other left. And his disciples asked, where, Lord? Where will they be left? Not where will they be taken. The language used proves that. There's a rapture. These aren't people taken to judgment. These are people left to judgment. Where will they be left, Lord? Jesus said, wheresoever the body or the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Where are they left? Where are those left that are left behind? After the rapture, they're left to the supper of the great God. Not all will be obliterated. Not all will perish at that battle. Not all. We're going to see that in Zechariah 14, but would you want to take a chance? Not all are going to die that are left behind. Some will survive into the millennium, but why would you take that chance? Most will perish. Job talks about the horses and the eagles prepared for battle, and God challenges him. Can you understand? Consider the horse and his bravery in battle. Consider the eagle who's young, like to suck up the blood. The picture of the horses and the eagles there in Job is a picture of this day. You know, eagles aren't like other scavengers. They like to feed on fresh meat. And on this day, there'll be plenty of fresh meat for the eagles. We see the gathering of birds in Ezekiel chapter 39, just like here, the feast on the flesh of those overthrown, Gog and Magog. We've talked about that great battle. You know, it seems that that's something that happens before the tribulation. But it could just as easily be talking about this day. That's one of those things I wouldn't get extremely dogmatic about. We've talked a little bit about Ezekiel 38 and 39 in here. Look at this list of people in in verse 18. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, free in bonds, small and great. Guess what? Poor does not equal virtuous. Common does not equal good. God is no respecter of persons. Just because somebody's poor doesn't make them righteous. Just because a tribe lives in a jungle doesn't make them noble. Just because somebody has money doesn't make them evil. God is no respecter of persons. None escape. The scriptures are clear that God is not a respecter of persons. God told Israel they were not to judge with respect of persons and not to be afraid of the face of man. If the the situation is too difficult, bring it to me, I will judge it. I wish we had people in government in America that weren't afraid of the face of man. That would say something that's good and righteous and not back away from it like so many do. I had a conversation on the telephone with my congressman's office the other day expressing my 
malcontent with issues in Washington, expressing my malcontent with this compromise, obscene budget that pours millions of dollars into foreign countries, but we can't even build a wall to protect our own citizens. I just called up there and I said, look, I don't vote for Republicans so they'll go to Washington and get along with Democrats. That's not why I voted for the congressman. That's not why I voted for him. I voted for people that will take a stand for what's right, regardless of whether it's popular. And frankly, I'm just sick and tired of the Republican Party going up there and basically serving no purpose but to get in my way and obscure my view of the enemy. I just assume you get out of the way and let me see my enemy clear and prepare to meet him on a field of battle when he comes. Get out of the way if you're not going to fight. And uh, the guy at the Hickory office got a little upset with me and said, well, Pastor, I hope you prosper in your endeavors and then hung up on me. And I thought that was despicable. So I called Washington and the Washington office and I told him what took place. And I just said, look, I voted a certain way, but I'm not convinced I'm what I'm going to do at the next election. And if, you're, if, if the congressman wants my vote between now and then, he better learn to fight for what's right because I'm sick and tired of people that are afraid of the face of men, so worried, say one thing and do another. At least that guy was a little nicer. I'm reserving judgment for what I'll do in November of 2020, but I'm sick and tired of this madness People judge, people have respect of persons, they fear the face of men. God does not. Jesus Christ does not. Neither should we. Proverbs tells us twice that it's not good to be a respecter of persons. Colossians tells us there is no respect of persons with God. Men will receive the reward for their doings. Their money, their fame, and their power can't help them. They will, there is a payday someday. You cannot bribe God. First Peter tells us God judges without respect of persons. James 2 tells us not to have respect of persons. If a wealthy man comes into your hall, don't pay all attention to him because he's rich and then neglect your brother that's poor. Have no respect of persons. James chapter 2 Have not the faith of, the Lord, of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of person. We shouldn't have this in our churches. Then he talks about somebody coming in with a gold ring and goodly apparel and then a poor man. And then you respect the guy that's got the fancy clothes and give him a good seat. And then you ignore the other guy. Are you not then partial in your judgment or in yourselves, verse 4, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? If you go down to verse 9, if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. We often refer to this passage when sharing the gospel. If you break God's law once, you're guilty of all. And then we look at the analogy here. If you say do not commit for he said don't commit adultery don't murder if you commit no adultery but you kill you or become a transgressor of the law that's the analogy James draws 
But we often don't connect the matter that evokes this analogy. What evokes James to say if you're guilty of breaking the law in one point, you're guilty of breaking it in all? What evokes it is the respect of persons in the church. That makes you guilty before God. We should not have that type of attitude in our churches. In fact, Paul said when the church is trying to settle a dispute, ask, ask the least in the congregation what their view is. Ask the one least esteemed to give an opinion. We're to be different than our politicians, than churchianity. We shouldn't be blindly loyal to the president. I'm amazed at how many are so blindly loyal to this man and make every excuse under the sun as if he's a 4D chess master. Give me a break. We shouldn't be like that as Christians. We should hold our politicians accountable based on the issues, not on whether they've done some good things or all of this, but be willing to, to stand on issues, call out men when they're wrong, and to praise God when they do things right, whether it's Trump or it's Obama. Both of them need Jesus. Both of them are going to perish in a devil's hell if they don't repent and get saved. Revelation 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. All of these armies are gathered together to make war. And they're unified. At this moment, they are unified against the Lord and His Christ, just like is described in Psalm 2. There's unity here, but not in the events leading up to this battle. In fact, these armies that are unified against the Messiah are fighting each other until that moment. You can look in Daniel chapter 11 and see these things. In the last days of Antichrist, it says the king of the south and the king of the north comes against him. That he hears tidings out of the east that trouble him. In Revelation 16, the sixth vial is poured out. The Euphrates is dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And then in chapter 16, they're gathered in conflict one with another. But yet suddenly they're unified. They're gathered to fight, but then they're unified. Nothing suddenly unifies men more than their hatred for God and His Messiah. Not God necessarily. They're happy to fashion God in their own minds to serve their own lust and pleasures. But men, nothing suddenly unifies men more than around hatred for the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why he that confesses not that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that is the spirit of Antichrist, John tells us multiple times in his epistles. You can't be right with God or have the Spirit of God without acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is God in the flesh. Mormons claim to follow God. They acknowledge a Jesus, but they are the spirit of Antichrist. Their hatred for the biblical doctrine of Christ equals that of Muslims, equals that of liberals and Nazis. Why do you think you see homosexuals 
and uh, Muslims yoked together in, in politics in this country. Islam is diametrically opposed to homosexuality. In fact, I would argue that the Islamic attitude about homosexuality is more in line biblically than the church's attitude. But they're unified because they hate the Messiah. That's what happens here with the kings of the earth. In Matthew 24, we're told that right before Christ's coming, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. We don't know exactly what this sign is, but it may be this obscuring of the light with the angel in front of the sun, but that causes men at war with one another to suddenly unify and turn the, and the object of their wrath becomes what they cannot stop. When the Euphrates dries up, it means that the snows on Mount Ararat will melt because they're one of the chief sources of water for the Euphrates River. I can't help but think that in the tribulation period that when those snows melt, a sign will be unveiled here on earth. Noah's Ark. A visible sign of God's judgment that destroyed the world and a warning to what's coming. But men won't heed. They won't heed. Against him that sat on the horse and against his army. The wicked don't only hate Messiah, they hate his church. Remember back in Revelation 13, it says that the beast blasphemed God and he blasphemed those that dwell in heaven. Those dwelling in heaven at that, at that time are the raptured church. Even they're blasphemed. Marvel not when the world hates us. Jesus said, marvel not. The world hated me first. That's why it hates you. In fact, if you're a Christian or you claim to be and you're serving the Lord, but you never experience the hatred of the world, I would say you're not serving the Lord. Paul said, yay, that means listen up. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because the world is unified in its hatred of Messiah and those that follow him. Nothing unifies men more. I've seen this and I've got a unique gift with people in certain circles to bring them together. That's one of my spiritual gifts. I like to bring men together. And it's really funny how in martial arts circles in particular, I mince no words. I have a little chutzpah in my martial arts philosophy just like when I preach the Bible. And uh, I have no patience for all the charlatans out there with the big sensei bellies who think they're so great have watered down everything they've been taught and lead people to believe they can defend themselves when they can. I have no patience for that. So I'll call a spade a spade. I'll call a, a dojo a McDojo if that's what it is. But it's funny to watch people that can't stand each other and go at each other on Facebook and go at each other in their dojos. They can't stand each other, but then suddenly they're buddies. Suddenly they're buddies because they both hate Sensei Boyd. They hate him and his dojo, and they'll unify together. So enemies become friends, rallied around their hatred for Sensei Boyd. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. I like bringing people together. I like bringing, making enemies into friends. And that's what happens here. Enemies become friends, and they turn upon the Messiah and his army. But a gathering which takes months to accomplish, remember those Demonic spirits go out and gather the armies. And this is taking place over a period of time. So 
a gathering, this gathering to Armageddon takes time, anywhere from three and a half to seven years, but the actual battle, it's a matter of hours at most. So we notice all this detail leading up, but then there's no description of a battle. There's no campaign or this army comes on the right flank and this cavalry, none of that. It's very simple, verse 20, and the beast was taken. That's the perfect summary of a battle that probably takes a matter of minutes and then maybe a few hours to clean it up. The beast was taken. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone couple of things here. First of all, to receive the the mark is an act of worship. We've talked about this. Those that receive the mark are those that worship the image of the beast. And those that do so are deceived. Many will be deceived. There's much in American society today that is not innocent. It is an act of worship before a false god. And those that participate in such worship are deceived and they'll be judged for it. Matthew saw an example of this leaving the dojo the night. He sent me a picture of it. He got behind a vehicle here in Hickory with the Christian fish on the back of the vehicle with the rainbow colors of the sodomites inside of it. That bumper sticker is an act of worship. That person that put that bumper sticker on their car worships the spirit of Antichrist. I don't care where they go to church. I don't care if they go over to this little Love Wins congregation that stood up to support the homosexual marriage agenda over here in Newton. I don't even know what it's called. I wouldn't even give its name. It doesn't matter. Those things are an act of worship. And these people may be deceived into that foolishness because they've sat under bad preaching, but they've got a Bible. The Bible's very clear about these things. That's an act of worship on that vehicle. And they're going to answer for it. Receiving the mark is an act of worship. There's so much of that today in the churches that we think is innocent, but it's not. It's an act of worship against an idol. God's going to judge it. There are two in human history who went straight from this earth into heaven, into the presence of God. Enoch, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. It's a great picture of the rapture of the church. One day, the rapture of the true church will happen. We'll be walking with the Lord in our lives and then we are not, for God took us. Praise God. Then there was Elijah, who was taken into heaven, In the presence of chariots of fire. Two alive go into heaven. Two alive similarly go straight into the lake of fire. The Antichrist and the false prophet. They don't die and go to hell and then get resurrected and stand before the great white throne. They're taken. This battle is simple. The Messiah reaches down, grabs them by the scruff of the neck and throws them into the lake of fire. Very simple. Plucked up and cast. You know, the Messiah does here in a fight exactly what we train to do in the dojo. I tell my students that if a fight lasts longer than 10 seconds, you've done something wrong. When you have to defend yourself 
or you have to defend an innocent person or your family, make it quick. Make it finished. Zap his will to fight as fast as you can. The objective is not to kill somebody, it's to take away their will to fight. And Jesus does this really quick. He doesn't kill them. He takes away their will to fight very quickly, grabs them by the nape of the neck and throws them alive into a lake of fire. That's justice. In Daniel, the fall of Antichrist is spoken of as standing up against the prince of princes, but he is broken without hand. So there is no battle per se. It says in Daniel 11 that he will come to his end and none will help him. That's the thing with the wicked. When the wicked unite together against the things of God, it's a false unity. There's no loyalty. There's no loyalty. Just like when our president elected, we had all these never-Trumpers during the campaign that all of a sudden wanted to buddy up to him when he got elected so they could get a, 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 a position in the cabinet in the White House. And then he foolishly brought people like that in. There's no loyalty among the wicked. Nobody will help this man when he comes to his end. All those people that are gathered with him, nobody will help him. That's, that's, there's no loyalty among thieves, among the wicked. That's why you don't see a lot of loyalty in churches because it's a big congress of louts and thieves, most of them. And shame on pastors who preside over that stuff and don't preach the word of God. Here in chapter 19, verse 20, this is the first mention of the lake of fire in the Bible. Now, the lake of fire is not hell. It's not hell. It's different. Hell is in the heart of the earth. Hell is a holding cell. We're going to see at the end of the millennium that death and hell are resurrected and stand before the great white throne judgment. And the wicked are then cast into a lake of fire. Here we have hell in this, in a, uh, the holding cell per se, the county jail of God, the lake of fire isn't where souls await judgment. The lake of fire is where men with bodies, new resurrected bodies, a resurrection to eternal damnation and contempt, Daniel calls it, are thrown into a lake of fire. That's God's federal penitentiary. That's God's death row. You're not coming out of that. Here we have the first mention of the lake of fire in Revelation, but it's not the first in the Bible. In fact, some people try to say that there is no hell or lake of fire in the Old Testament. Some Jews try to say there is no, we don't believe in that, it's not in the Bible. Well, it is. In fact, in the Old Testament, you have some people that went alive straight into hell. Now, hell's not the lake of fire. They went alive straight into hell in Numbers chapter 16. All right, I see some sleepy eyes in here. Let's wake up. I'm almost done. Let me finish the chapter. 1631 through 33. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and all their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods they and all that are appertained to them went down alive into the pit, into Sheol, into hell. And the earth closed up upon them and they perished from among the congregation. In fact, God told the rebels there that I'm going to do something no one's ever heard of. You're going to go straight to hell. And 
not, not through death, not through the doorway of death. So we see hell there in the book of Numbers, and we see the lake of fire in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, this talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And during that period of eternal, uh, eternity future, those living in the new heaven and the new earth, which is after the millennium, after God recreates a new heaven and a new earth, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Jesus quotes this passage in Mark chapter 9 when speaking of eternal damnation. So there we have the lake of fire, an eternal burning. That's a testimony even throughout the new heavens and the new earth. I believe that in the new heaven and the new earth, we'll see the smoke of that burning from a distance, a perpetual reminder, just like an eternal flame at the Holocaust Memorial or John F. Kennedy's grave, a flame that burns from a distance, an abhorring, a reminder of God's holiness and His judgment. The lake of fire is mentioned first here. The beast and the false prophet are its first inmates. First inmates in this eternal Alcatraz. In chapter 20, verse 10, it's the devil goes in next. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, the devil, who tries to gather men in rebellion against the king, he's thrown in. So a thousand years later in chapter 20, verse 10, it says the devil is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. So they aren't thrown in the lake of fire and burn up. They're still burning. They're still there a thousand years later and the devil joins them. And then later in chapter 20, we see that both death and hell and all its inhabitants go next. This is the second death. The second death is when hell... And all those in it are resurrected and they're cast into the lake of fire with new bodies. Daniel calls it the resurrection of shame and contempt. Blessed are those that have no part in the second day. We'll talk about that more in chapter 20. Then in chapter 20, verse 15, the lake of fire appears again. It's a warning. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That means brought up out of hell, the county jail, found guilty in court, and then put in the federal pen for all eternity. That's the relationship between hell and the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, verse 8, we have our last reference. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Notice who's listed first there. Murderers, whoremongers? No. Fearful. The cowards. The cowards are listed first. Cowards, when it comes to right and wrong, are cast first. That's true justice. If you're going to make a bold statement and then you're not going to stick by it, you're a coward when people stand against you, you're better off not making that statement at all. If a local police department puts bumper stickers on its patrol cars with the scripture verse and thinks that's so great and yet an atheist organization sends them a letter and they immediately take them all off because they're afraid of court, those police officers would have been better off never even referencing the scriptures. 
than to have been the cowards that many are. Politicians that stand up and preach about life and the unborn and say things that we're so glad to hear, yet when the time comes, are cowardly to actually stop doing something about or start doing something about they, they may as well not have said anything. If you're going to preach pro-life and yet in your administration the government increases its funding to Planned Parenthood, then you would have been better off not saying anything. That's my opinion. The fearful and unbelieving. First. And then verse 21, the last verse of the chapter. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The remnant here is those armies gathered against Messiah and his bride, slain with the sword. John said, which is the word of God. This is John 12, 48 fulfilled. Jesus said, I, uh, if any man hear my words and reject them, I don't judge him. I came into the world to save the world. But he that hears my words and rejects him, rejects them, already has one that judges. It's the word I've spoken, and that word will judge him in the last day. Bam, right here. Slain with the sword of his mouth. John 12, 48, fulfilled. Hebrews 4, 12 is quite literal. The word of God literally divides soul and spirit. Right here. Slain with the sword of his mouth. And the beast, or I mean, and the birds... Feast, and the birds are filled with their flesh. That is justice. All that is wicked is made right. When the birds are filled with the flesh of these wicked people that control this world system, that is justice. Zechariah actually tells us how this goes down, exactly how this goes down. We're told they're slain. With the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, the beast and the Antichrist cast alive in the lake of fire. Their armies and their followers slain with the sword of the Spirit. What does that look like? Zechariah chapter 14. Please be patient with me. I'm almost done. Verses 12 through 15. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. This is what it looks like when they're slain with the sword. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor. And his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse and of the mule and of the camel and of the ass and of all the beast that shall be in these tents as the plague. It's consumed. The armies, their horses, they'll turn their In those moments the, when the beast and Antichrist are taken, they'll turn on each other. They were divided, now they're unified, then they're divided again, and their flesh will just melt away right off their bodies. Their eyes and their tongues will just melt away. That's what it is to be slain with the sword of his mouth. There's a great picture of this in an old movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark, the original Indiana Jones. I was going to show that this morning, but I'm not. It's kind of, it's not for the kids. But when they open up the Ark of the Covenant, and those 
they find the dust in there. Those Nazis and what, whoever those guys were. One guy's dressed up like the high priest from Israel. And then these, thing, this, these clouds start floating all around. And everybody's like, oh, it's so beautiful. And then suddenly the face of an angel turns to the face of, a, of an angel of death. And then these people literally are consumed away standing there. And one of the guys is standing there looking into the ark. And his face melts away. The other guy's face melts away. His eyeballs and his tongue fall that came right from this book. I mean, that's where the, that illusion came from. Um, uh, that plague that's described here. So a lot of allusions to the scriptures in our society and even in Hollywood. Hollywood hates the Bible so much, but they always allude to it. It's like they can't escape it. Not all the inhabitants remaining on the earth are going to perish this way. It's the remnant of the beast in his armies. But not everyone will perish in verse 16 of Zechariah and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations and those that survive which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts and to keep the feast of tabernacles. That's the messianic fulfillment of the feast of tabernacles in the millennium. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So there will be those that survive and that are allowed to live and continue on under the millennial rule of Christ. Maybe these are people that shut their eyes and don't look like uh, Indiana Jones and his girlfriend tied to the pole. Don't look at it, he said, and they survived. I don't know. So these are people that actually survive the battle and they'll survive the Matthew 25 sheep and the goats judgment. Those nations that helped Israel during the tribulation will be allowed to continue. Those that didn't will perish. And one of the requirements of the king during the millennium will be that the nations come up to worship during the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the fulfillment of that Jewish feast. There will be nations that survive and are allowed to enter the millennial kingdom. People will live and die. There will be new generations born. And yet, amidst all of this, a spirit of rebellion will endure. There will be nations that refuse to come up and worship. They'll be punished even during the millennial kingdom. I believe men's ages will be similar to what they were before the flood and there will be unregenerate people that are born and have an opportunity to follow the king or not. And rebellion will endure. Man will always fail in every dispensation. In his flesh and in his heart, he will fail if left to himself. He will rebel. Men are not basically good. Men are basically rebellious. It's, in fact, that, it's more correct to say that men by nature are rebellious than to say men by nature are evil. They're not just evil. They're rebellious. If man, man can be in a garden of Eden in perfect innocence with a simple commandment and everything he could ever imagine or desire, he chooses to rebel. Or man can be under the rule of an iron rod under a king who means business with all power that they themselves have seen, knowing the punishment for rebellion, and they'll still rebel. 
And you know what? In this rebellion, the devil made me do it is a pretty lame excuse. Because we're told here in Zechariah that men rebel against the Lord and refuse to come worship at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to see in Revelation 20 that the devil ain't nowhere around when this happens. He's bound up in the abyss. He's thrown the abyss for the millennium and he's let loose just a little bit at the end and men are going to again show their true colors and again there'll be a battle that just is over like that. That brings us to the end of chapter 19. We'll start chapter 20, Lord willing, when I return. We're now at the end of the tribulation. It's done. Now comes the millennium. The literal thousand year reign of Christ. This isn't an analogy. It's not a, it's not a symbol. It's not something that people say can't be understood. It's not a dark secret. It's very clear. Somebody said to me one time, how can you base a doctrine, a literal thousand year millennial reign of Christ upon one verse in the Bible? I said, what do you mean one verse in the Bible? And they pointed to uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 and talked about people living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So you're going to build a doctrine on one verse. I said, friend, you are ignorant. You do err not knowing the scriptures. The millennial reign of Christ is all over the Old Testament. All Revelation 24 does is tell us how long it is. Don't err knowing not the scriptures. We can rest that these things are true and literal. And the church will live and reign with him. We'll have responsibility, governmental authority that we can't have here and we shouldn't want to have here. True believers maybe shouldn't want to even think about going to Washington because we don't want to be corrupted. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the things you have in store for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Thank you for revealing these things to us by your spirit and your word. We look forward to the day when the king shall come, Lord, when the flesh of wicked men will consume away, when Jerusalem will be liberated, when the saints on their own white chargers will ride behind him and live and reign with him for a thousand years. We look forward to the day and the ages to come when the rebellion of men is extinguished forever. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, Lord, we know these things are sure. We know these things are true. May we trust them and not be afraid of evil tidings. Lord, thank you for this church. I pray that you would con- your spirit would continue to teach them and grow them and nourish them in the word of God. Be with those men who share the word in the coming weeks. And I pray that it will be a testimony and a source of comfort and an anchor. Bless our food, Lord, and our fellowship this afternoon, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.